Job chapter 38, beginning in about verse 12, we're going to read ahead. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like a clay under a seal and stands out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? For what way is light diffused or by what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? And the frost of heaven who gives it birth, the waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. In the book of Job, and particularly in chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42, a series of questions are asked. In broad terms, remember, they can be summarized in three broad ways. Can you explain my creation in chapter 38? Can you oversee the creation in chapter 38, verse 39 to 39, verse 30? Can you subdue the creation in chapter 40, verses 6 through 41? Another way of looking at the questions, particularly for chapter 38, do you know the sources from which the universe sprang in chapter 38, verses 4 through 21. Do you understand the systems upon which the earth depends? Chapter 38, verses 22 through 38. Do you appreciate the specialties by which animals are distinguished from other animals? In chapter 38, verse 39, and then all the way to chapter 39, verse 30. The whole point becomes, God is going to be speaking about his creation. The inanimate things that he has made. The animate things that he has made. According to the Bible, the Lord's original plan for the creation was to provide a beautiful, safe, joyous environment for his creation and creatures. Adam and Eve turned God's paradise through rebellion and sin into a place of difficulty and sometimes misery. Our world though broken and fallen, still retains much beauty and mystery. God's questions to Job concern weather patterns and celestial circuits and life on the planet. And again, we 
we're invited. We're invited to ask the question, well, why is all of this happening? Why in the world has God showed up? Remember, Job has begged him to show up. Why in the world does God question Job this way? We're left with the impression that the questions are meant to humble Job and maybe even assure the Lord, the creator, that he could design and sustain the whole universe. That he may be able to design, sustain, care for his creation and therefore care for you. The real God who made the heavens and the earth cares for you. Some people feel that they have the right to question God. Or threaten God. Or demand from God. Explanations. Why did you stick me in the family that you stuck me in? Why in the world am I here? Why am I living at this time? And why am I living under these circumstances? And how do you explain the past and how do you explain my present in truth the bible has so many answers in truth the bible invites us to ask questions like why am i here what's gone wrong with the world How can I have a right relationship with God? And the whole Bible is devoted to answering those questions. And God shows up. I believe in order to demonstrate his power, his majesty, his complete care. Remember, he's inviting Job to answer these questions because Job has suggested that maybe he deserves an answer. Again in verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, do you have the ability to say, sun, rise, sun, set? Do we even understand the question? Job is being asked, have you ever caused or have you ever directed the morning to appear or have you lived your life much like mine that when you're tossing and turning at night and you see it go from two o'clock to three o'clock to four o'clock and you beg God and you go when will the morning come when will the sun come up but you don't have the ability to direct it (laughs) verse 13 that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it It takes the form of clay under a seal and stands out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. The idea is, have you ever spread daylight over the earth to bring an end to the wickedness in the night? The idea being, can you make the sun come up? Can you flood the surface of the planet with light? Can you expose the deeds of darkness? Have you ever made the sun come up or the light or placed it in motion so that it would shine down into the crevices in the valleys on the surface of the mountains or over the top of the ocean? Have you ever placed the light on the planet in such a way to expose the depths of of its beauty? Have you set the light in motion to expose the haunts of the wicked? The assertion is that that wickedness would run wild if it weren't for God's restraint. 
And so again, like the last time we were together, if you say, well, I've taken pictures of the sun and I've taken pictures of of the dawn and the sunset, but here's the idea. The idea is that God has created the darkness and the light because remember, Job has suggested something. Why is there light and darkness? Why is there good and bad? Why do we even have such a thing as wickedness? And many of you know the answer. That God didn't create the world to be wicked, but to be just and beautiful. But something went terribly wrong. God gave people the ability to choose or choose otherwise. They chose rebellion. In verse 15, when he says, From the wicked their light is withheld, and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Human beings have mapped the ocean floors. In verse 16 when it says, have you entered the springs of the sea? In Job's day, no one had ever gone underneath the water. Some people clearly have gone under the water 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet. People have have swam and dove, but there comes a point where you can't go any further. We have come to a place where we've mapped the ocean floors with the deep caverns and the mountain ranges and the waters. The book of Genesis says that when the floods began, all the fountains of the deep were broken up in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11. The Hebrew word for broken up means to rip open or to burst forth, implying this great subterranean Waters existed on the surface of the earth. You see, I'm doing a a, a geology expedition this weekend. And as we go to the front range and as we look out, we're we're not obviously going to the beach. We're, We're going to be looking at the mountains. But as we're looking at the mountains, we're going to be asking the question, what was the world like before the great flood came? What was the world that Adam and Eve were created in? What did that world look like? At what point did the world change? What did the world look like moments before? Before the flood came, what, and when the flood did came, how did the world change, and where did the waters come from, and how do we explain the presence of oceans? Some creation scientists believe that the mid-oceanic ridge fissures are possible evidence of of a scar that appears below the surface of the earth and under the ocean where literally the crust of the earth opens up and under pressure, water bursts forth. The very word ocean or springs of the sea translates a word which means to burst forth. But he's asking the question, have you entered the springs of the sea or have you gone to the place where the earth separates the water from the water that's below, if you will, the very bottom of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? You can't walk under the surface of the ocean. Have you ever taken a journey to death's door? Have you ever explored 
the place where people go when they die. You'll remember that Job expressed on multiple occasions his desire to die. He wanted to find a bit of peace in death's dark place according to chapter 10 verse 18. But again, the Lord invites the question, are you sure you want to go where you've never gone before? Are you sure that you would even recognize it? Have you ever gone to that place and do you know what lies beyond that place? And by the way, when it says, have the gates of death been revealed to you? It hadn't been revealed to Job, but it's been revealed to you. You know that a real Jesus died on a real cross. The Bible says that he died a real death. The Bible says that he went to the place of the righteous dead and proclaimed those people who were under the auspices of the righteous dead were now going to be liberated. Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. And of course, I told you last week, I know the breath of the earth. The radius of the earth, it's 3,959 miles, 6,371 kilometers. However, earth isn't quite a sphere. The planet's rotation causes it to bulge at the equator. Earth's equatorial diameter is 7,926 miles or 12,756 kilometers. From pole to pole, the diameter is 7,900 miles, 12,720 kilometers, a difference of only 40 miles. But did Job know that? Job didn't know it. You know it. He's basically asking the question, do you know how big the earth really is? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Or where does light come from? Imagine you could go 93 million miles to the source of the sun, which provides the vast amount of light that is in our solar system and is clearly on the surface of the planet. But he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where does light live? And darkness, where is its place? Because Job has talked about light and he's talked about darkness as if he knows about light and as as if he knows about darkness. How is it possible that, that it can be light on one side of the planet and dark on the other? God knows why, because the earth is a sphere and it's rotating on its axis and as the sun faces the planet, there's the presence of light or there's the presence of darkness. But he's saying, do you understand the mystery of light and darkness and where they are kept? Why? Because remember, they're living in a world where light is good and darkness is bad, but God is making a suggestion that maybe it's important for you to understand That it needs to be light somewhere, sometime, and it needs to be dark sometime, somewhere. Remember, if 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 the face of the earth faced the sun all the time, that side of the earth would roast. And the other side would freeze. But God has created a world where there can be light and darkness, where there can be temperature control. He says in verse 20 that you may take it to its territory. That you may know the paths to its home. In other words, can you measure the distance between east and west, between the horizons? Or as the popular song says, do you know just how far the east is from the west? Some of you know the song, one nail scarred hand to the other. 
Do you know just how far the east is from the west? Verse 21, do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Oddly enough, the accumulation, the proliferation of knowledge is said to double every year. You're living in a time of unprecedented information. But he's asking Job, were you born when light and darkness first appeared? And the answer is, of course, no. We know from the book of Genesis, remember, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the the deep. You remember in the book of Genesis, it says, and then God said, let there be light. Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Have you ever been where the snow and hail are stored, where God keeps them until they're needed to execute justice and judgment? But it it seems that what he's, he's suggesting is that God can use the weather in order to determine how he's going to deal with the world in which he's going to deal with it. By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Do you know the path lightning takes or do you know where the east wind scattered? But he's talking about these intangible, um, immaterial, non-animate things that are close by. He's saying, Job, surely you know about those things. And since Job was having such a time, tough time with the mysteries of the universe, maybe the Lord could lob him a softball. Okay, Job, let me just give you something a little more common. Let's talk about something that's a little more accessible and available. Let's just talk about something simple like rain and ice Verse 25, who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt? It's like the song, who has told every lightning bolt where it should go or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? Had Job ever been to the North Pole? Had Job ever been to the South Pole? Does Job understand that the the atmosphere can contain such an amount of water that it can rain one to two to three inches anywhere in the world at any time? Who determines where the rain should fall? Who charts the paths for the thunderbolt, it says? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water? Who determines where... It's going to rain or where it's not going to rain. Verse 26, to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man. The Lord is basically asking, hey, imagine you're in the middle of the desert. Why in the, will, why in the world would God cause it to rain where there's no one or there's nothing? Explain the presence of rain. Explain the growth of grass in the vast wilderness. Explain all of the things that go on in all of the places where no human being lives. Why is he even saying this? He's hinting at something. How do you explain the presence of deserts and vast wastelands? I think that one of the explanations that that God is beginning to suggest is, guess what? Everything that happens may not involve you. Does it shock you or surprise you? That God has created a universe where he allows things to happen that has absolutely nothing to do with you. 
to satisfy the desolate waste and to cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Has the rain a father or has or who has begotten the drops of dew? When he says, who is the father of rain and of the frost that forms in the morning? Because again, he understands that we're living in a world, or at least in the world of Job, where people wondered, where does the rain come from? Verse 29, from whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives its birth? In other words, how does ice form? How does frost form? The series of questions beg yet another question. The Lord, in effect, is asking Job, okay, Job, do you understand the weather? But again, even as he's asking the question about do you understand the weather and the weather patterns on the earth, he seems to suggest that the weather and the, the way that the weather works centers on his plans. Does God use the weather to intervene in human affairs? I think that the answer is yes. Does God control the weather for human benefit? I think that the answer is yes. But does God control the weather and doesn't feel obligated to include you in the process? I think that the answer is yes. I know that sometimes we think we're wiser than God. God, please don't let it rain. I know I've prayed that prayer. God, please let it rain. Please don't let it rain. God, please let it snow. Please don't let it snow. As if I have the wisdom to understand the presence or the absence of precipitation in order to meet the compelling needs of all of the life forms on this planet. Are you really that wise? I know that I'm not. In verse 30, it says, The waters harden like snow. Not like snow. The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. You learn as a very little kid, water freezes and it turns to ice, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, why does ice float instead of sink to the bottom of the glass? How is it that a lake freezes but all of the life forms underneath the water continue to survive? Generally, solids are denser than liquids of the same substance. Solid lead is denser than liquid lead. And because it's denser, it sinks. So how in the world is it possible that when water turns to ice, that it doesn't sink? And by the way, if it did, life on the planet as we understand it would cease to exist. Job, explain it to me. I'll explain it to you. Ice is less dense than water and therefore it floats. Ice is less dense than water because of a special type of chemical bonding called hydrogen bonding. A hydrogen bond is a weak bond between a hydrogen atom and an unbonded pair of electrons from another atom. We can think of a water molecule as being in the shape of an X twisted so that the top half is perpendicular to the bottom half and the center of the X is an oxygen atom. At the bottom of the tip of the X are two hydrogen atoms atoms, and at the tip of the X are two unbonded electron pairs from oxygen. So 
As you can see, water molecules are prime candidates for hydrogen bonding between each other each other at warm temperatures. Water molecules have a lot of energy and are able to move past and mix with each other despite the attractions between the hydrogen atom and the unbonded electron pair. As the water cools, the molecules have less energy and hydrogen bonding takes over. The molecules form an ordered crystal through hydrogen bonding that spaces the molecules farther apart when they are when they're liquid. This makes the ice less dense, allowing the water to float. So that's why water floats, just in case you're interested. Now, I read an amazing story that took place in 1942. Six P-38 Mustang Lightnings and two B-17 Flying Fortresses were taking off from a secret air base in Greenland. They were planning on bombing Germany and the squadron got lost in a blizzard and the pilots were forced to land on a glacier. The crew was rescued nine days later, but the planes were abandoned because of the driving snow and they left the planes there for 50 years. In 1982, Atlanta businessmen Richard Taylor and Patrick Epp decided that they were going to recover the planes. Twelve years and millions of dollars later, they finally recovered one of the eight planes. They literally disassembled it and reassembled it because they were each buried under 250 feet of snow. The fact that 250 feet of snow could accumulate in just 50 years tells us something. That hundreds of thousands of years aren't necessary to form thousands and thousands of feet of polar ice caps. Instead of hundreds of thousands of years and multiple ice ages, a single catastrophic event like the aftermath of a global flood could explain the depths of the polar ice caps. But God asks Job, do you know why there are even polar ice caps? Do you know why water freezes? Both evolutionists and creationists agree that the Ice Age was the last major geologic event that that changed the surface of the earth and the topography of the earth. And all of this science is very, very interesting to me. But I read about a panel of economists who were discussing the financial markets and something was asked that I found quite amazing. The moderator said to this group of economists, what is the greatest influence upon the world's economy? And their answer was surprising. They said, the weather. The weather is the biggest driver of whether or not things are going to be good or bad or healthy or unhealthy. Think about how much the weather controls people's ability to make a living or to grow crops or to sell those crops. People spend their lives trying to manage money and make their best efforts to understand the markets, the moods, and the weather. But then the Lord shows up and says to Job, do you understand all of these things? More importantly, he says, can you control these things? So pause for just a moment. Imagine that you decided one day that you understand how the sun emits light. You understand how the weather works. You understand why ice floats in water. You understand 
how the earth revolves around the sun. You understand how the sun revolves in the galaxy. Next question. Can you do anything to change any of it? Yeah, that, that's the right answer. The answer is no. And so in verse 31 when he says, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? The Lord is asking Job, Can you direct the course of the stars and the skies? The Pleiades and the Orion are, are, are references to star systems. And I happen on my screensaver, this isn't my screensaver, but on my screensaver I have the Orion Nebula. It is a vast nebula that is unbelievably cool. The Pleiades and the Orion, these are huge star systems. In verse 32 when it says, can you bring Matzarot in its season? The New King James translators decided that they weren't even going to try and translate the word. They just literally translated it, 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 the Hebrew equivalent, the Matzahot. Can you guide the great bear with its cubs? The the great bear with its cubs is a reference to a star system that we call Ursa Major. And by the way, if you ever have a laptop or a, a, a tablet or a smartphone, there's an app that gives you the ability to to, to quite literally see the map of the heavens and all of the constellations. And here, the Matzarot is a mention of the constellations. Remember, in the ancient world, they literally followed the constellations or the movement of the stars. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have been on the ground and you look up in the sky and you look from one horizon to the other horizon or you've been out camping or you've stayed up all night and you can see the stars moving throughout the course as the planet Earth is rotating on its axis in the solar system in which we live and in the galaxy. And so the Matzarot is a reference to the constellations. And we know that the ancient people, even during the time of Job, understood the reality of the stars in the skies. I did a little research from a guy named Francis Rolleston, and he writes, quote, Matzaroth, though sometimes in modern lexicons differently interpreted, is here used as the meaning of constellations. In Job 38.32, it stands in the text of the English Bible untranslated. In the margin, it's rendered the twelve signs. Matzaroth is a feminine or neuter plural noun applied to separate chambers or divisions such as the constellations. Matzaroth is a word which is sometimes identified. It means a way through which anything goes. And so the, the, the word, just for a moment, means the passages. From one passage to the next passage to the next passage to the next passage. And so for people who, who wonder about astrology, you'll remember that people in the ancient world believed that that. The stars were beings and that they moved across the sky because they were light and because they they moved, they believed that they were alive. We know that stars aren't alive. We know that they're big bodies 
of gaseous material, but we also know why the constellations move through the, the sources as, again, the earth is rotating on its axis around a sun, and a sun is traveling through a galaxy. So he goes on and he says, means a way through which anything goes as the sun through the zodiac, as the moon through the lunar mansions, or matzel al-kamar, which is the Arabic words for the lunar zodiac still used in the east. It occurs in the sacred scriptures in 2 Kings chapter 33, verse 5, probably in the same sense. But the point becomes, was there an understanding of the constellations in the ancient world? The answer is yes. In the ancient world, did they understand that that there is movement in the sky? The answer is yes. The astronomer looks at the vast complex of the universe and wonders at just how small we are, and so he invites Job to look up and to consider the constellations. And can you explain them? Do you understand how they work in the vastness of the universe? Way before the invention of the Hubble telescope, Spurgeon, with poetic insight, said, quote, If inclined to boast of our abilities, the grandeur of nature may soon show us how puny we are. We cannot move the least of the twinkling stars or quench so much as one of the beams of the morning. We speak of power, but the heavens laugh us to scorn when the Pleiades shine forth or bring with spring or vernal joy. We cannot restrain their influences. And when Orion reigns aloft and the year is bound in winter's fetters or chains, we cannot relax the icy bands. The seasons revolve according to the divine appointment. Neither can the whole race of men affect a change. He's actually saying what is being said in the text. And that is, can you make, did you place the stars in the heaven? No. Have you ordered their orbit? No. Do you understand the presence or the absence of gravity and that in order for the universe to function as it is, in order for the earth to exist in the place and under the circumstances that it does, do you understand all of that? Job is saying no. And here becomes the point. Is God the creator of the heavens and the earth? Yes. Is God the creator of the universe? Yes. Was it God who placed the earth 93 million miles from the sun? Yes. Is it God who made the sun exactly a million times larger than the earth and as an energy source that would be appropriate in order for us to live here? Here's what the Bible's testimony is, even though we live in a world that basically doesn't even believe this even for a moment. The Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth and that he created it in such a way that you could live here because that's the way God planned it. That your presence here isn't an accident. That the world in which you live in and that God has created and that he's placed you in, he did so for a reason. As crazy as it sounds, the Bible teaches, God created the universe and the solar system and the earth in exactly the circumstances so that you could live on it so that you could know him. So that you could love him. So that you could walk with him. We question God's wisdom. We question God's judgment. 
we question God's goodness. We sometimes act as if, is God smart enough to really take care of me? You should ask a different question. Am I smart enough to take care of myself? Do I have the ability to create the universe, the sun and the moon and the stars? Do I have the information necessary to make sure that all of the circumstances in the world in which we live is such that the optimum things are going to happen in order to honor God? So in verse 33, it says, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their domain over, over the earth? It's his way of saying, do you understand the mechanical properties that allow the universe to function in the way that it does? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you create a universe in such a way that it affects our sun and this earth in such a way that you have the optimum life? Or do you know the laws of the heavens? In a book, A Closer Look, Evidence by Richard and Tina Kleist, they write, quote, as, as, as astronomers look far out into the universe with increasingly more powerful telescopes, they observe the rapidly moving galaxies often cluster tightly together. If these galaxies started out as a single point of matter, as we've been taught by the Big Bang Theory, they should be evenly dispersed by now. For galaxies to remain tightly clustered would be the same as throwing a handful of rocks at a target 20 feet away and having every one of the rocks hit the exact center of the target. This never happens because the individual rocks spread out as they travel different trajectories at different speeds. It is only right after they leave your hand that they will be in close proximity. They write, the same is true of these clusters, star clusters. If they've been moving apart through space for billions of years, they should not be in tight clusters, but they should be widely spread apart. This is one of the huge problems which many scientists face, doubting the validity of the Big Bang Theory. The galaxies within clusters are so close together that they couldn't have been flying apart for very long. The visible mass of these clusters is much too small to hold galaxies together by gravity. They can only be in close proximity because they were recently created, unquote. What's interesting is the Big Bang Theory promotes two big ideas. The first big idea is that there was a beginning. The Bible seems to affirm that. The Big Bang also seems to affirm that the universe has a beginning, a middle, and an end, which again, I would affirm. But there seems to be some problems. But whatever those problems are, the more that we begin to understand the nature of the universe and the composition of the universe and the mechanics of the universe and the problems associated with a mechanical universe that wasn't created by God, that, that has no, no meaning or significance, doesn't make sense. Everything about the universe points to it being created, points to it being created with a purpose, points to it being created <laughs> with you in mind. He says in verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? 
It's his way of saying, can you tell the sky? Rain. Don't rain. The Lord points out Job's ignorance and impotence. The Lord alone controls the storms and the rain and the lightning and the thunder. In verse 35, can you send out lightnings that they may go and and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the mind or who has given understanding to the heart? It's his way of saying, who made you with the ability to think about questions? The very fact that you can say, I wonder if there's a God. Who gave you the ability to reason? Who gave you the ability to interact with the world that you live in? Who gave you the ability to communicate? He says, who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? You may... Think of that as poetic language. William MacDonald rightly points out, quote, Obviously, anyone who can question the wisdom and power of God should be able to bring down rain by shouting to the clouds and command lightning so that it obeys instantly. He writes, Can Job tell God how the mind operates, how man gets wisdom and understanding in all of these areas? No man has the wisdom to number the clouds, to say nothing of the particles of moisture by which they are formed. No one can determine the time when the rain falls on arid ground that has been hardened into clumps and clods. That's what it's talking about. And so again, the idea comes really You want to be God? You want to be in control? You want to be in control of the universe? You want to be in control? Here's part of the argument. You seem to be satisfied to be the God of your own life. But are you qualified to be the God of your own life? Are you qualified to be the God of your own life? Do you exist because that's you willed yourself into existence? Were you born into the family that you were born into because that's the way you wanted it? Or was your first choice to be a Walton and a billionaire recipient of the Walmart fortune? I mean, if you could choose, would you choose your circumstances? Or would you choose some other circumstance? Here's what he's basically saying. We live in a world where people want to be the God of their own life, but they come to the realization that that's probably not going to work out because you're not really qualified to be God. He says, consider the animals. Look at verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? The Lord invites Job to consider the animals. And by the way, It begins here. We're going to continue in our next study. But there's going to be a dozen or so animals that will be mentioned. He'll talk about the lion. He'll talk about the raven. He'll talk about the goat. He'll talk about the onager. He'll talk about the deer, the donkey, the ox, the ostrich, the the horse, the locust, the hawk, the eagle. What's, What's interesting is, as you already know, Are lions, ravens, goats, deers, donkeys, ox, ostrich, horse, locusts, hawks, and eagles, are they different from rocks? 
Even if rocks are interesting, you can have metamorphic rocks and igneous rocks and sedimentary rocks. You can have all kinds of interesting rocks, but animals are fearfully and wonderfully made. When he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion? The idea is that lions and ravens, if they have something in common, are animals that need help in finding food for their young. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Lions wait to ambush their prey. Ravens tend to forage for, for seeds. You'll remember in the New Testament, Jesus says, consider the lilies. Consider the birds of the air. They toil not, neither do they spin. And here's the affirmation of Jesus. Jesus basically says, God created the animals. He's in control of all that the animals do. Now, again, here's the idea. God cares for the universe. God cares for the animals. God cares for you. Now, pause for just a moment. Is it possible to to the casual observer, they look like they're on their own? Imagine, I don't know if you've ever been an atheist or an agnostic, or maybe you know an atheist or an agnostic. Maybe you grew up in a world with someone who looked out onto the universe, and, and they looked out at the universe, and they looked at the sun, and they looked at the stars, and they looked at the planet that they were living on, and they came to the conclusion that all of this is on its own, undirected by a deity. The animals are just living the way that the animals are living, with no direction, no care, no ecosystem, no design. Even in this world, the world in which Job is living in, and these kinds of things are taking place, the big question becomes, do we live in a universe that's on its own? Do we live in a world that's on its own? Do we live in a human circumstance where you're on your own? Or is there a God? Is there a God who loves you and thinks about you? Who's created a mechanism so that you could know him and love him and experience grace and mercy? And so when he says, when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait, Or who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Who indeed provides food for the raven? And part of the point that seems to be happening is the implication is that God can hear the cries of big birds. No Sesame Street pun intended. Little birds like sparrows, does God see the lion on the African plain? Does God see the birds in the air? Can God provide and care for the animals? Can God hear and provide for his own people in time of need? And so in the brief time that God questions Job, God points out, We've talked about inanimate creation, rain, ice, weather, earth, sun, stars. 
We're going to talk about animate creation. That's animals and humans. But we're back to the fundamentals. How did the universe get here? Why is it here? Why do you live in this solar system on the third planet from the sun? Why were you born in the circumstances that you were born into? How is it that you explain your life? Does the passage invite the reader to make inquiry and say, help me to look at the mysteries of the universe and then begin to contemplate what kind of a God is God? Does the passage provide answers to some of those mysteries? Is the passage inviting the reader to put God in the place where God belongs or does it invite you to continue in rebellion and unbelief and disobedience I'm going to suggest to you something in the whole chapter God is inviting you to consider his greatness his mystery his authority his wonder his majesty and as you Meditate on his greatness and his wisdom and his glory. Again, he invites you to ask questions like, can you trust him? Is there a real God? Has he spoken? What does he have to say? What's his message? How can I know that message? Who am I? What does he want from me? And again, last week when we were together, I reminded you of what Philip said to Jesus when he said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And the whole Bible becomes an invitation for you to consider God and consider Jesus and to look at Jesus and to ask and answer the question, has my vision been blurred? Am I finding it hard to see God in a world that's marred by sin and that's broken by rebellion? Am I finding it hard to see God because of my marriage or because of an illness? Am I finding it hard to see God because of a circumstance or pain? Am I finding it hard to see God because I live in a broken world and a sinful world or even a world where there is a battle going on for my mind and my heart and my my soul and the devil is desperately trying to deceive me into thinking that there is no God or if there is a God he doesn't really care about you at all and the Bible says exactly the opposite that every moment that the earth is spinning on its axis around the celestial object called the sun which travels through the course of the galaxy in a gigantic universe created by God. Every molecule, every moment, everything designed by God 
to bring you to a place where you would exist and know him and love him and walk with him. And now all of a sudden, the speech of God and the nature of God and the glory of God and the greatness of God and the power of God and the majesty of God invites us to look at all of the rest of the Bible in light of that one thing. Next week, chapter 39, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we might have scientific answers. To the constellations in the sky and the movement across the surfaces of our horizon. Of why animals act the way that they act and why ice floats. And Lord, even as we explore the greatness of the universe in which we live. Even when we uncover mysteries that have only recently been discovered are we still left with the overwhelming reality that everything, everything, everything in our universe and the very fact that we have a mind points to the fact that there's a real God who loves us and cares about us, who thinks about us and who's created us. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that we have a mind that we can think about you and a heart that can beat for you that our curiosity can take us to places where we can be satisfied with more and more and greater and greater information. But Lord, we pray, we pray that we would come to that place where in humility we would acknowledge that you're great and that so much remains unknown. And yet what is known is so wonderful that we're sinners and that we can be saved and that Jesus loves us and that he died for us and that we could experience all of that love. Lord, we pray that we would not allow our weakness or sinfulness to cause us in any way to doubt your goodness or your love. Lord, we invite you to bring us back to that place of humility and submission and and true awe at how wonderful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.